Welcome back to Little Wars FM. I'm your host for today's episode, Greg, and if you are interested in the business side of the tabletop wargaming hobby like I am, then this podcast episode is one you do not want to miss. Today, I'm talking to a founder of one of the largest wargaming channels on YouTube, and also one of the oldest channels. This is a story of two friends who quit their jobs, started something new, and helped pioneer a new kind of wargaming media. Back in 2007, YouTube was still in its infancy, full of random cat videos and low-quality uploads. The idea of filming and producing wargaming battle reports was mostly unheard of at that time, and certainly no one was crazy enough to try making a business out of it. Well, almost no one. My name is Matthew, and I'm from miniwargaming.com. We are a YouTube channel slash media outlet all about miniature wargaming, mainly in the fantasy and sci-fi area. Over the course of the next hour, Matthew and I talk about how he and Dave built Mini Wargaming into one of the most successful wargaming channels on the internet. We talk about what it's like to make gaming videos as a full-time job, and how they run their channel day to day. What is the future of online video in the next 10 or more years? Will it continue to replace traditional forms of media like print magazines? And what advice does Matthew have for wargamers who want to start a business around their hobby? Um, so I'll tell you the secret to any business having success in just a moment, so stick around. But you've got to keep listening for a couple more minutes. I can safely report that Matthew isn't just teasing you. He actually does make good on this promise during the course of the interview. So we were originally scheduled to chat for just 30 to 40 minutes, but as you can tell from checking the length of the show, uh, we went way over our allotted window. I'm certainly not complaining because this is an interview that I've selfishly wanted to do for a long time. I've followed the growth of Mini Wargaming for many years, and seeing their success in the sci-fi and fantasy space actually helped to inspire our club to start Little Wars TV for the historical side of the tabletop hobby. To some extent, I, I feel like every miniature wargaming channel that's been created over the last decade is following in the footsteps of Matthew and Dave, and at over 350,000 subscribers and counting, I don't think they're done growing quite yet. Matthew joins me now from his home office in Ontario, Canada, the official world headquarters of the Mini Wargaming Empire. Thanks again for listening to Little Wars FM, our companion podcast to our own YouTube channel, Little Wars TV. We've been making videos for almost, I want to say, 14 years. Yeah, something like that. It's, it's hard to know. There was no like perfect start date of Mini Wargaming. There was an idea. There was a, a date when we registered the domain name, the date when I put up the first blog post, the date when we posted our first video, the date when we opened our online store, uh, and they all range over a course of about eight months. And so somewhere in there is our anniversary. <laughs> so Excellent. Yeah, so it's me and uh, Dave that are business partners. And then we have a group of employees uh, that are that range from uh, video producers, so the people who make the battle reports and are in the battle reports, to our support staff, such as we have a video editor, we've got our obviously customer support, and behind-the-scenes stuff like that. Uh, take me back to 2007, and what was the decision like to start making videos then? And did you have any idea of how big and how important YouTube would become for your business? 
That's those are very interesting questions because uh, things looked incredibly different back then. So it was actually 2006. Our first video was posted in January 2007. But uh, to really get to the origins, you have to go back. Let me take you back to 2006. Um, or if we want to go even further back, we won't do that. Dave and I grew up together, basically. And we played, without realizing that we got into miniature wargaming, we played Battletech as teenagers. We got into role-playing games and all of that. As adults, we were, we were both entrepreneurs. Um, Dave uh, started his own landscaping business, whereas I was... Uh, I had a web design business at first, and then eventually a marketing consulting business. And that was going pretty well for both of us, but Dave hated landscaping. And we had just recently gotten into the tabletop miniature war game called Lord of the Rings. Probably heard of it. Not the game, maybe, but obviously the, the IP, Lord of the Rings. And um, we were big fans of that. And Dave came to me that summer. It was the summer of 2006, essentially, the early summer. And he's like, I don't want to do landscaping anymore. I'll do anything to not have to do landscaping. The thing is, he was actually making money with it, but he just, it was he killing his body because he's got a bad back. And because I was doing marketing, specifically internet marketing, I had been learning a lot about e-commerce and also about video marketing. See, videos, putting, putting a video on the internet was not easy back then. 2006, by that point, it had become easier but when I had started my marketing business, if in order to get a video on the internet, first off, you wouldn't even want to because everybody's internet connections were so bad that it would not really work. But then you'd have to purchase a service that costs probably between $50 and $100 per month just so you could put up some sort of little 240p video on your sales pages or whatever that you're trying to do there. So the introduction of companies like YouTube, there's actually a bunch of them. There still technically are, but... Obviously, YouTube's reign supreme. There's YouTube, Daily Motion. There was, oh goodness, I'm trying to remember all the names now. There, there was a bunch of places that you could post your videos. So when we started, essentially the idea of Mini Wargaming was to have an online store, so the e-commerce side that would sell miniature wargaming products from various companies. And because I was learning all about e-commerce and I wanted to run an e-commerce store. And then the on the video side, the sole purpose of the videos was to create entertaining content that would then drive traffic to our store. And we didn't just focus on YouTube. I actually remember downloading software that would let me upload my video to 10 to 15 different sites at the same time and put the titles and descriptions and tags and keywords and all of those. And so it wasn't all about YouTube at first. YouTube actually was pretty bad back then. The advertising revenue, as much as it's not great right now, was abysmal back then because no main companies wanted to put advertisements on kids skateboarding videos and whatever else was going on at that time. Uh, when we entered the market, the biggest wargaming channel was Blue Table Painting, and they had 2,000 subscribers, and we aspired to one day be as big as them. And like 2,000 subscribers seemed like such a, a heyday away. So, yeah, could I know how big YouTube was going to get particularly? No, definitely not. I didn't, even, I didn't even hedge our bets on YouTube. We were posting everywhere. And then over the years, as we saw more and more and more and more of our traffic was coming from YouTube, um, obviously, we focused more on that until it's become the superpower that it is today. And all those other sites have either disappeared or found their own niche of what they're going to be to be different from YouTube. So even if you didn't know that YouTube would be the one that ended up kind of emerging from that pack, you must have had some inkling that video, even though it was in its infancy, was going to be an important component. I mean, when you when you made the decision to to get into video in a, a pretty big way, was that 
was that a business decision or were you just kind of messing around? You guys are just having fun and eh, we'll post these videos and see what happens. Was it, was there more strategy involved? Definitely more strategy. I employed a lot of the, 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 the strategies and marketing techniques that I had learned from the years that I was doing internet marketing. And cause like there was little things like, um, on a sales page, when I talk about sales page, I talk about landing pages that are selling a product or a service or whatever. And we discovered that your conversion rate on those pages would go up a lot just by including a little play button that when you clicked it just had an audio recording of the person saying, Hey, this is Matthew from whatever company. Thank you so much for visiting my site. I am so excited to share this opportunity with you or to, to help you build your best website or to, to get you the best sleep possible with a mattress, whatever, whatever you were selling to have that. If you added that audio to the sales page, we found that conversion rates really went up. And then, so it just made sense. The video became a big thing. It was more for the sales side of things that I was seeing it. Cause I was starting to see technology where you'd go to a page and all of a sudden somebody would walk on the corner of the screen. Oh, I remember turn. those. I remember. You remember those? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You remember yeah. Those <laughs> yeah. were a big deal. You yes, green screen I... yourself and then you'd walk on the corner and be like, hey, welcome to my site. Uh, I'd love to sell you some products and services, that kind of thing. Um, and those actually worked really well for increasing conversion rates. Uh, they were they were new. They were fun. They were interactive. Well, not interactive, but, you know, if, if you could feel more of a personality to the website. So I knew there was no doubt in my mind that video thing was becoming a bigger thing. But what really pushed it as well is Dave has always been a camera person. He's always been, he's always wanted to be an actor. Uh, he's, he's just, he just, he just wanted that side of it. And whereas I was more on the tech side of things, I had learned web design and programming and all of that. So the partnership was formed as a, I would be the marketing and technological guy and he would just make videos and be the face of the company. It didn't take long before that changed so that I also made videos too, but that was always the original intent that um, I, I would use my marketing company to basically kickstart this thing and then he would just make videos and we would put those two together and voila there's mini wargaming we'll be millionaires <laughs> i think anybody anybody who watches your channel knows that it's clear you guys have very complementary skill sets uh, that that was clear from the get-go which is which is great i mean that's a great foundation of any business that's a nice way of saying that we're exact polar opposites of each other. <laughs> <laughs> in some ways, in some ways, maybe, but that works in business because people have to fill different roles. Uh, yeah. It's the only way you succeed. And clearly, you know, going on 14 years since you launched the, the channel, you've succeeded in a big way. I mean, we're talking about over 6,500 videos on YouTube alone at that time, plus everything that you guys have in the vault. So you're, you're averaging well over a video a day for more than a decade, which is kind of astonishing. Yeah. Uh, what, what is that daily grind like? The, the word grind is accurate. Um, it's funny because people are like, you've got the dream job, you're playing games for a living. And you're absolutely right. I will not complain for a moment about the job that I have. And so so any, any complaints I give now are with recognition that that uh, I'm very lucky to be able to do what I do for a living. Having said that, yeah, it can be a grind because like you said, we're putting out a couple videos almost every single day. And, um, and it, it, that, that it's, it's a lot of work. It's, it's, you're constantly, constantly filming, you're constantly playing and, uh, which is important. You know, we want to be heavy into the hobby and, and learning as much as we can about things and making all sorts of different kinds of content. What does it look like on a daily basis? Well, 
we've got uh, we've actually got a manager, Josh, the, one of our video producers. He's also actually the general manager, so he actually I've I've put all the burden of that on him to make sure that things get done on time. That way, I can focus on content creation and other things like web development. Uh, you know, things that I need to have time to do, and Dave can focus on his content creation and all of that. And then we have several video producers right now. At this time, we've got Josh, Steve, Luca, and Vito. Um, they're the four guys that basically help us make all the videos. And by help, I mean like they'll actually make the videos too. It's not just like they show up in the videos. They are the ones that run making battle reports too. Like we'll film with them, but they'll also film with each other. And so every day we've got six studios. Uh, we never have the capacity. We're never filming in all six studios at the same time. But um, it's nice to have the buffers between. So then if I'm filming in the studio, you film two studios down just so you have better sound dampening and that gives you a variety of backdrops but just like yesterday there were three studios filming i was filming two episodes of a narrative campaign that starts to go out today actually not the ones i filmed yesterday but they're part of a new show that when i say today i mean when we're making this interview <laughs> obviously not when people are watching it and at the same time dave was actually filming with his wife a new series where she's learning warhammer 40k with sisters of battle and at the same time, Vito and Luca, I want to say Vito and Luca. Yeah, I think the two of them were filming a game of, or maybe it was Luca and Josh. I don't remember because I was busy filming. That's the whole point. I have somebody else that's organizing that and every day looks different. So we're all filming at the same time. Then we have Colin, our video editor. Editing our videos is actually really easy. Um, early on in the process, like years and years ago, when we couldn't afford employees and video editors, we had to do everything ourselves. And I hate video editing. So I found every possible shortcut in how I filmed about a report to make it so my editing was pretty straightforward. And so that's really lent itself well to be able to create a lot of videos because the editing process only takes like an hour or two per battle report, which allows one guy to basically edit all of those videos you've seen coming out. So we do have a second backup video editor if he gets backed up. Um, but for the right now, it's just him. That's all the stuff you see us putting out right now. It's just one guy editing all of that and just full time, like not not overtime, not 70 hours a week, just a full time job doing all of that. And so and then we have our customer support person, tech support person, content uh, poster, Aaron. She takes care of making sure it goes up every day on the different you know, on YouTube or on Vimeo and on our website and getting it broadcast to our social media. So uh, there's a bit of an intricate machine that is at play constantly. So it uh, it's the, the trick is the trick in making it less of a grind is trying to have as much variety as possible. And that's always been hard. You know, you like try not to play the same army for too long and switch up which games you're even playing like oh you've been playing a lot of 40k let's go play some age of sigmar oh you've been playing a lot of regular battle reports all right let's film a narrative campaign and as you try to have that variety just to keep things interesting for yourself and for the other video producers but sometimes it can it can feel like a grind that's for sure so you mentioned that yesterday three games were being filmed all at once what's the lead time like on your schedule how far out are you guys planning i mean when when will viewers see the three games that you were filming yesterday are those projects that you're not going to release for for months unfortunately i wish we could do that but the rapid release schedule of games workshops products prohibits that because if i film something today and i wait a month to put it out it could already be outdated 
they may have put out an errata or an FAQ, which change a fundamental rule, especially right now because they just have a new edition come out. Yes. Yes. Or a new codex could come out, like a new army book, basically, and all of a sudden you just invalidate it. So couple that with the fact that we're putting out so much content, um, and right now we don't have guests coming in to help film, because before we'd have people coming in as well, and that would allow us to film even more. Because um, like before, we'd be having sometimes four or five or six studios filming at the same time. Uh, it's... It's a we're not we're not far we're not far ahead. Let's just put it that way. Like for example, I filmed two episodes of a narrative campaign yesterday, and those will go out next week. And the ones that and pretty I think pretty much everything we filmed yesterday is either for next week or the week after. So we're about one or two weeks ahead. Like we had one week just three weeks ago or two weeks ago where one person was on vacation, two people had to stay home. One one because of uh, actually two because of COVID. Not that they had it, but they, you know, they had to get tested for it, so they had to self-isolate. And then another person was sick for a different reason, and so we lost four of our video producers for almost a full week. And so there was actually a week where we had to put out a little less content and have to post that on our social media, saying, "Sorry, lots of sicknesses. We weren't able to get this done today." But that doesn't happen very often. But um, it is obviously subject to that kind of problem. I suspect that most of the people who are going to be listening to this interview, of course, are wondering in the back of their minds about about the business side of what you do, because you have such a cool business. Uh, what are the economics like for a, a full-time wargaming video channel? And I know your business is more than just the video channel. You do have a web store. You have other avenues of revenue. This depends on what market you're in. So I'm assuming people watching this, if they're interested in starting a YouTube channel, they're starting, they want to start it to do with miniature wargaming. Um, which is a very small market. Like when you think about the biggest company that is making miniatures on the sci-fi and fantasy side of things is Games Workshop. And they post their their annual revenues and stuff because they're a, a public company. And I'm trying to remember the exact numbers. I want to say between two to 300 million a year is what they're making. Like one video game makes that. Right. <laughs> one movie costs that. It, like, obviously not all movies, not all video games, but there are plenty of movies and plenty of video games that make that. And that's just one. So obviously, miniature wargaming is a very small market compared to other markets. Like, even the role-playing market is much bigger. The big difference, though, I find with miniature wargaming market versus, like, RPG markets and board games and all that kind of stuff, like if you're going to other geek culture, is the uh, how much money people spend in it. And so the individual obviously spend a lot more money on this hobby than a lot of other hobbies. There's, there's plenty of hobbies that cost more. My dad's in the boats. I think that costs more for uh, on average. Um, but, I don't think anybody uh, would dispute that. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, but, uh, but you spend a lot of money on miniature wargaming. Like if you want to get, there's a lot of other hobbies that are way cheaper. And, and so that's kind of helpful because even though it's a small market, people tend to, who are interested in it and who get into it tend to have more money. I'm not trying to say that the that every wargamer is rich or anything. I'm just saying that um, it is, if you if you were looking at the average income of a wargamer versus other markets, you probably find it to be slightly higher. Um, and that means they have a bit more disposable income. And and so that allows you to try to find a way to monetize that. YouTube ad revenue, I'll tell you right away, is not going to be their way to do that. Uh, there's just not a lot of it. With the all the views that we get, we get like between one and two million views per month on our YouTube channel. 
the amount of money that we make from YouTube ad revenue, I can't give the exact numbers just because of disclosure stuff, but I can basically tell you it doesn't even cover the rent of our place. So it's enough that I would be sad to see it go, <laughs> but it's not enough that you could possibly run a business. Like it's, yeah, I, if, if all I had was the ad revenue from YouTube, I would have to do this by myself. And even then I, it wouldn't be worth it. And so you have to look beyond that. And so when we first started, um, I'll say something that might sound like bragging, but I'm just going to say it. We were the first real channel to introduce having a paid subscription service for videos. And people were really against that at first, although lots of people still signed up, but there was a lot of negativity associated with that. And now nobody finds that odd because everybody does it now, which is great because they realized, hey, I can't just post videos on YouTube and become a millionaire. Like, like those two channels that have ridiculous views. Um, and so if you're going to be, if you're getting into this as a business, if you're just doing it for fun, throwing up YouTube videos or whatever, you can do whatever you want. But if you're trying to make a living off of it, first off, understand it's going to be hard. It's going to take you years. Um, and you probably won't become super rich off of it because I know that we aren't. And we've been doing it for 14 years and have tons of subscribers and lots of views. And we're still figuring things out. We're still struggling to to make enough revenue to want to be able to expand and to um, and to just cover all of our costs and everything. And so like we're doing OK. Like I'm not saying we're about to go to business or anything. It's just but we're not swimming in cash. Let's just put it that way. We're very fortunate. We've been able to build up a large terrain and miniatures collection. We live we are in an awesome building with great studios. A lot of that comes, though, from somebody who really helped us out with that. Um, and so the the income basically comes mainly from our vault members, which is our paid subscription. So about half of our videos go behind a paywall. And then we do make some money from our our merch store as well. Uh, we have some other stuff that we make money from as well related to miniature wargaming. Uh, but the lion's share of the money comes from our supporters. And so lots of people will try to do that with things like Patreon or their own subscription service. Patreon is fine, um, but it'll only get you so far because it's basically just, for the most part, altruism. So somebody, if they want to support you, will sign up for your Patreon. But because people have so many choices now of where to throw their money, like uh, not only do they have their main services like Netflix and Hulu and all those other, and Amazon Prime, all the other ones that are coming out uh, faster than you can, can really keep up with them. But you also have now pretty much every YouTube channel that you follow has a Patreon. Every Twitch channel you have, you can subscribe to. And then there are even some of them that a few of them even have paid services for some of their exclusive content. So that you're going to need those kinds of income. You have to do that. Otherwise, if, if you're looking to make a business out of it. So but it's going to be tough. So you, you kind of need to look at all the different sources of income that you can do and even be creative as well. Like uh, if you're a painter, maybe do some painting commissions on the side. If you are really good at the game and win tournaments, maybe do some consultations, like charge for consultations. Uh, like you got to kind of look at your own skill set and see what it is that you're bringing to this. This just like any other market, any other business. What are you bringing to the table that people are going to want to pay for? And uh, that's how you have to look at it. If you're just looking at it from a business point of view. So if you're getting uh, a really significant portion of your overall revenue from the vault, uh, how do you how do you decide how much content you want to put behind the vault versus put out publicly? Because, you know, there is a fine line. You want to put enough out there publicly that you can get new people to come into the vault. <laughs> well, right now it's a one-to-one, -one, mainly. Uh, and the idea here is how, when we first started, it was make videos to promote our store. Well, that store no longer 
is around. We don't have an online store for buying miniature wargaming stuff. We do have our merch store, which has miniature wargaming stuff, but that's not the same thing. Um, and so it's become, I look at the YouTube videos and uh, as just another part of our marketing that they exist to get people to join the vault. Uh, if we're looking at, if we're just boiling down to numbers, like obviously they exist because I want to entertain people. I want people to get into this hobby. But in the end, uh, we're a business trying to make money and feed our families and pay our employees. And so there has to be revenue coming in. And so videos exist on YouTube to drive people to become vault members. And so we've come up with the, we, we've tried a lot of different things. And the thing that seems to work the best, at least for us, is that you just have pairings. You every if you put out a if you want to have a Warhammer 40k battle report come out in the vault, then you post one for free as well. But in that free one, at the beginning and at the end, you advertise the fact that there is also one for vault members, and you advertise the fact that there's a seven day free trial if they want to just try it out. And they're not sure if they they're going to want it, and there'll be a link in the description to that one as well. Narrative campaigns, we do the same thing. Um, every other episode goes out for free, and the other one goes in the vault. So every week, two episodes of that campaign go. It, it, which, you know, there's, our battle reports get more views on YouTube, but our narrative campaigns get more vault signups, which is interesting because there's a continuity to them. So the more of a continuity between the two videos that there are, the uh, often the more vault signups you'll get from that. And we do actually track our vault signups by which video they are coming to view so that we can make informed decisions of what people want to see and what's driving them to actually make the decision to become a vault member. So typically that's what you see is a one-to-one -one, with some exceptions. Some videos just go out for free and some videos just go into the vault. But uh, if you only have, if you look at like Netflix uh, or Amazon Prime or any of these other ones, they have to do an inordinate amount of advertising because they have nothing for free, except the free trial, of course. Uh, they don't have a show that you could watch and then go and watch the next episode in, in Netflix. And so instead they have to put all their money into advertising. And so I view the money that I put into making those YouTube videos as our marketing budget. And that has worked really well for us. Anytime we've tried to do paid advertising, it just doesn't seem to get a return on the money that we're spending. I'm sure there might be a way to do it, but um, it's just, uh, it hasn't, hasn't worked really well yet. You guys have always had, I think, excellent production values on your videos, but that definitely took an even higher jump when you moved uh, into the new into the new bunker, the new facility where you have all your elaborate studios. I mean, they look incredible. Well, thank you. Uh, uh, so, even even if you look at YouTube more widely, production values just across the board have have obviously come a long way since two thousand seven when everybody was posting cat videos. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> that's that's been a very discernible trend over the last decade. Um, if you're going to look ahead into the next decade, so now we're going to fast forward to 2030, what do you think are, are some of the next big trends or big shifts that we might see in the video market? And are you already sort of trying to keep those in mind as you look ahead? That's a good question. And uh, I'll answer honestly, I have absolutely no idea. And the reason I can say that is because if I looked at, if you asked me that same question 10 years ago, there is no possible way I could have predicted where things are at right now. If I had to make some guesses. <laughs> educated. Which, we'll call them ed educated. Educated guesses. Like, well, first, okay, here's a big one. Uh, live streaming. Uh, that That's taken the gaming world by storm, right? Uh, mainly the gaming world. Like, I remember um, 
when like Geek and Sundry first announced that they're going to do a role-playing game series for Dungeons and Dragons called Critical Role. And I remember watching the first episode. I didn't watch it live, but I watched it. It was posted afterwards. And I saw that it had millions of views or one or two million views. And I watched it. And you know, they had some technical difficulties at the beginning. But after that, I'm watching something like, this is interesting. I'm like, there's no way. that It is new, so it's interesting. But this thing's just going to, after a few episodes. You're, well, killing your, you're killing your credibility here, man. Right, exactly. Well, I told you, I have no idea. I'll, I'll, but I'll tell you why that's an okay thing. And, and not trying to get my credibility back. But if you're coming into this and you think that you know everything as a business, then boy, are you in for, for a surprise. Um, so I'll tell you the secret to any business having success in just a moment. So stick around and I'll give you the ultimate secret to having success in your business. <laughs> well, that is quite the tease. Yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> but you got to keep listening for a couple more minutes. We're going to chop so, this podcast in half. <laughs> yes, right. And sell, and sell the second half, right? Exactly. <laughs> It'll be an Orville. Yeah. I'll, I'll teach you how to get people to call your 1-900 number and get billed by the minute. So uh -huh. to get to get these secrets, call 1-900. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah, so like I saw Critical Role come up and I'm like, okay, there's people aren't going to want to watch this. How many, how many, okay, let me ask this question. How many times have you heard somebody years ago and even now say, you know, why are you watching somebody else play a video game? Like, how is that entertaining content, right? And it is. I can't explain it. I watch more StarCraft than I play. Uh, and it makes sense once you really put it together because you think of sports. Like, well, you could turn the question around and be like, well, what sport do you watch? Uh, golf. How often do you golf? Uh, not very often. Are you any good? Ah, so why are you watching golf? You're not a golf pro. You don't know what you're talking about. Well, so obviously people like to watch other people play games, um, and we've, we've had that already in sports. And so it was interesting to see even myself have that same bias. Like, no, people aren't going to want to watch a four-hour show of people playing Dungeons & Dragons. I don't care how entertaining they think they are. You need to edit that down. And lo and behold, we can see uh, where that's gone. And, um, and people are still watching years later. And so live streaming obviously was a big thing. Uh, so that's that's been a big shakeup, and a lot of people thought that that would eventually replace video marketing, just like they thought email would replace um, paper, like you would never need paper again. Uh, and so, but the, uh, often when you have these new technological disruptions come into any marketplace, sometimes they replace, but often what they do is they find their own niche, they find their own thing that they're good at doing. Like uh, you look at like MySpace and other social media stuff that came out a long time ago, and then you have Facebook come out, and and then you get Instagram and Twitter and all these different social medias, and you're you're like, how can these all survive in the same environment? Because they, you know, Twitter is just at, when it first started, it was just the status update that you have already on Facebook and Instagram. You can already post pictures on Facebook, so what? Nobody's going to care about these, and yet, lo and behold, they do. And it's because there's a lot of different ways to communicate with each other, and they're all suited for different needs. And so I don't ever for, uh, see YouTube like just flat out making videos about subjects ever going away, just like uh, books will never go away just because we now have movies. Um, what I could see is technological disruptions. And what I have seen is the technology to make the videos has become super accessible. When we first started, I had to spend a lot of money on a crappy camera and a lot of money on good audio equipment. 
Well, now you can get a professional camcorder for a fraction of what I used to buy them at. And you can get decent audio equipment as well. And terrain is accessible enough now. It used to be hard. You had to scratch build all your own terrain to get good terrain. Now there's a lot of companies that sell terrain and so on and so forth. And so now the, 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 the barrier to entry, um, the, the miniature wargaming video making business has become very low. Uh, and and, and I, it always has been low. Like you just need a webcam, you can start talking about miniature wargaming. But I'm talking about making decent videos has become very low. And so obviously that makes the marketplace a lot more crowded. So in 10 years from now, the adjustment I think that we're going to have to make as many wargaming is that we're just going to have to keep finding types of content that um, that kind of set us apart from everybody else. Like right now, I'd say it's narrative campaigns. Like a lot of people make battle reports and they like our battle reports. And I don't think we're not going to stop making battle reports anytime soon. But we have to keep um, innovating that. And that's the tough part because the, the, the longer you're in business, technically the harder it becomes to innovate because you've found what works, you get comfortable with what works and you don't notice if you have like a slow decline towards death and you almost need like an external source to come in and, and be like, Hey, what's going on? You need to kick this in a high gear. Um, and then you have to also deal with everybody's comments and what they think is the right thing to do. And, that's also not very helpful because most of the time people are not really they because I'm admitting I've been in this business for 14 years and I'm admitting that I don't know what the best thing is to do. What I do because I know that is I pay close attention to our analytics. I watch where the trends are going. What are people watching more of? And uh, also things like releases and stuff obviously will kick up interest in certain things. So you prepare for those when you know upcoming releases are going to happen. You need to make sure that you're you're doing something related to that. But I don't know. Ten years, it's it's like maybe maybe we'll have like maybe VR will be such a big thing in ten years that everybody will be making VR content instead, um, or maybe holographic technology will have kicked off a lot, and so and it's so all of a sudden playing this type of game virtually through holograms will be a bigger thing. Maybe not in ten years, but uh, we're already seeing huge technological disruptions in the marketplace and so that that's really going to change the face of what miniature wargaming is going to look like over the next decade or two let alone the people who try to cover it through the media so that's the best answer i can give because we just try to react as we go along and hope that it works and uh, i just hope that in 10 years from now we're still going strong well there's also there's you can also pivot into other things too like for example we're trying out running events obviously that's on hold right now where we'll be running all sorts of wargaming events that are bunker. We've got places for people to stay and they can come and get into immersive campaigns and tournaments and things that you're not just going to necessarily find, well, tournaments you can find anywhere, but things that are you're not going to be able to experience just at your local gaming store, even if it is a really good store. We want to run events like that. And so that can help bring in some extra income as well. Uh, and of course, there's always the various uh, products and services that you can create for this market. And so we just might have to pivot to things like that. Um, We'll just have to we have to just kind of keep our eye on everything and not get lazy and accept things the way they are and, and watch a slow decline into insignificance kind of thing and that's tough it's it's a lot of work and it's a lot of mental stress as well well in in our hobby you and dave have definitely been pioneers in the video space going back to those early days of youtube so let me get your take on a more traditional form of media, one of the oldest forms of media, the print magazine. Uh, there are still some really big brands out there for war gamers. You know, you've got White Dwarf, War Games Illustrated, uh, War Game Soldiers and Strategy. There's lots of other smaller niche magazines. 
from your perspective, um, what do you think the future looks like for print magazines in the wargaming space? Are we going to see continued pressure on them, consolidation? Is that going to be a struggling industry, or is there a future there at all? I, it's, it's hard. It's hard. I think we're going to see a decline. And not necessarily... I think because it's so easy to get all that information and that kind of entertainment online. And I'm not saying video replaced it, because I don't think video is ever going to fully replace the printed word. Uh, because our, like, there's a lot of times where if I want some information, I don't want to watch a video about it. I want to watch an article or read an article because I can skim through it. I can, you know, I can speed read. I can just find certain pictures and all of that. And so I don't think the, the, uh, that kind of media is going to go away. In physical print form, yes, I think that's going to go away. Be in this market, in this market, and it's going. It, it, the magazines will continue to survive in larger markets. I think we kind of see that with newspapers as well. That um, that's kind of declining. I don't have all the numbers in front of me and everything, but I think it's pretty apparent that over the past generation, people are reading newspapers a lot less, um, and like. Mine doesn't ever leave my driveway. When I go to take my recycling out, that's when I pick up the newspaper that they dropped in my driveway and I put it into the, the recycling bin. <laughs> no, that's anecdotal. Wow. That's just me. But that's that's as far as it gets. Like uh, it's just, um, and and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I know that it hurts the industries, um, but uh, I I would guess from what I've seen, what I've observed, and all the different companies that do the print media that they will continue to exist. But um, as a way to solely be able to really grow a business, that is going to become tougher and tougher until maybe in this market particularly, it'll become impossible. I wouldn't be surprised in the next decade to see White Dwarf go exclusively digital or to disappear altogether. There might be some like, like real niche areas where the magazine still works, like maybe still making it so they can deliver to their stores so people in the store can peruse it almost more like, a, not like a catalog, because they can have catalogs too, although you can't really have catalog for a lot of these games because there's just too much stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I, I see it going away in the physical form. I never see it going away, though, in, in digital format. Let's talk about that digital format for a second as it relates to magazines, because I can remember, I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe less than 10 years ago, when... Everybody was talking about e-zines, you know, digital-only magazines and how that was really just going to take over. And, I mean, as of now, 2020, that hasn't really happened. That future did not materialize, which isn't to say that there aren't e-zines, because there are. As, as human beings, we're pretty horrible at predicting what is going to be good technology and what's going to be bad technology. Um, and what we do instead is we innovate and we try it all. And then the ones that work, they stay. And the ones that don't, don't. So I think e-zines are a good example of one of the things people have tried there because they because we're 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 not very human beings are both creative and horribly not creative. Like you look at the movies and the TV shows that we have, they're just rehashing the same things over and over again. Because well, what else would we do? It it takes a a, a strange individual to come up with something uniquely new, and so. When there's like, uh, okay, we have these digital mediums where we can post words. It's like, well, why don't we take our magazines and just do exactly the same thing, but digitally? And we'll even call it an electronic magazine or an e-zine. It's like, well, why? 
that why is that suitable for digital? Because it's the first thing we can think of. Like, what else are we going to think of? And so I think ezines was just a an attempt to try to figure out how to take what we love because the magazines are great. There's nothing wrong with them. It's just except that they're physical, and so that makes them hard to distribute. They're more expensive and uh, more costly to create. Whereas uh, anybody can write an article uh, and put it on their website. Like you, you can start a website for a few bucks a month. So I don't see them ever really being uh, a big thing because they're just, it's not necessary. We've got other ways to do it. Have, uh, so you, you and Dave have, have always been sort of cutting edge on the video side. And I, I know that you have a podcast as well. Um, have you guys talked about trying to innovate in other media spaces, maybe taking inspiration like an e-zine and, and taking it in a new direction for some kind of digital publication? I mean, are you, what I'm trying to get at here is looking ahead into our 10-year crystal ball. Are you working on different forms of, of media that you think will be important for your business, or do you see it as primarily video for the foreseeable future? It's, um, so, so the ones that we would consider and have considered would be things like podcasts, uh, which we don't really have a presence in. Like we've dabbled in it, but um, we don't have a huge presence. And there's also live streaming, which for a little while we tried there, but we found that just with the resources that we have, that were it's hard to because if if we wanted if I want to do a podcast and I really want to get into that market, I need to do more than just you know throw it out there, kind of do it, um, you know, just not not really get into it. If I if I really want to to push our business into that, we've got to go all out. And we don't have the resources, time or money to do that for podcasting. Live streaming, same thing. We tried that for a little while and we found that um, the part of our business that was already established and that was already making us money was suffering because of it. And so that's the hard thing. This is what I'm saying. The more established you get in the business, the harder it is to innovate. uh, Unless you're one of those lucky businesses that's just raking in so much money that you don't know what to do with all the extra, which is not common. Most businesses aren't doing that. And so it's like, how much do we ignore the principal money-making part of our business to try out new things? And so we have to be very careful where we put our resources for that. And so I personally, and maybe I'll eat these words in 10 years, I personally don't think that doing a podcast is going to get us there. Live streaming in this market, I don't think will get us there either. I think that... um, I think for at least a foreseeable future, we're going to be focusing on trying to make our videos better and on trying to make new types of content that will be unique to us, at least for a time, because nothing can ever stay unique, right? And just try to capitalize on the advantage that we have, which is the resources in terms of the people that we have to work with, the hallway full of terrain and models and the studios that we have to film in and try to capitalize on that as much as possible to stand out in the marketplace and just continue to do that, at least for the next while. So that's that That right now is honestly, and it might, it might sound, I don't know if that sounds wise or it sounds foolish. Only time will tell whether it was the right answer, right? So I've, I've read so many business books and one will say, you know, this business continued to really focus on their core strengths, which is why they succeeded. And then another business book will say, this business focused only on their core strengths, which is why they didn't succeed. <laughs> and it's like, you don't really know. You're, no. you, got, you got hindsight. 
you're like, okay, yeah, that business failed. Now we're going to say why. It reminds me of being in high school and all those English teachers telling me all the intricacies of what the authors meant in their books. I'm like, I don't, half these things they probably didn't even think of. <laughs> There's always the benefit of hindsight and you can always piece together things afterwards. And so, so I had said before, I'll give you the, the success secrets. So it's really simple and I, and I don't want to miss it. So here's, here's the secret of success. Have an idea, work super hard on that idea, and then walk away from that idea the moment another idea is better within that same environment. So be willing to change. So in other words, work super hard and be quick to adapt the moment you find something else that's working better. And that's, that's what we've done over the past decade. And that's the trick is to keep doing that once you're comfortable. And that's hard. That's some great business advice, and uh, and you certainly followed your own advice back in the early days. I think one of the reasons that I have such admiration for what you and Dave have done is just uh, how you you were really the first in in our hobby to spot how important video was going to become, and whether you were a, a mastermind or whether you got lucky, you you paved the way. <laughs> yeah, you're flashing up number two there on the screen. I guess. yeah. Oh yeah, that's the third that's the third secret of business. Get lucky. Get lucky, but you. But luck will never help you if you're not working hard and trying to adapt. But you can work super hard and try to adapt, and if you don't have luck, then well, you're screwed. So you need all three of those. But uh, you don't have control over luck, so just try to do the other two as best as you can, and then you'll just see what happens. And because, like, let's face it, like Mark Zuckerberg, yeah, he's a smart guy, but he got lucky. So it's just like there's a lot about being in the right place at the right time, and I feel that that's a huge part of our success. And I'll and I'll. Just like 50% of our successes come from just sheer dumb luck of being in the right place at the right time, being there. Because our growth, basically, if you like, if you tracked YouTube's growth and our growth, they were on the same path. And so we grew because YouTube grew and that we were very lucky to start there. So somebody starting now is both more lucky and less lucky. They're, they're less lucky because there's a lot more noise. There's a lot more competition, but they're more lucky because it's way easier to get into. So take your pick of which one you'd rather. Well, before we wrap this up, let me get you to weigh in on one last form of media that seems to have a downward trajectory path. And I'd like you to weigh in on that. I'm talking about blogs and traditional forums, you know, forums like the miniatures page. I mean, that in the days before video and before podcasting, that's really how the Internet was taking off. Mm -hmm. And those those sites are still around. Uh, which absolutely, yeah. which is sort of amazing in some sense, uh, but they are clearly dying a a slow and discernible death. So, is that a trend that you think is going to continue, or are those platforms that could find ways to reinvent themselves, or will they just sort of linger around in the same way that the printed book will never go away? I I don't think any technology fully goes away. There's always people that are willing to continue adopting it um, because it might actually be the best form for them. Um, I can't speak for individual forums, like there might be individual forums that are seeing a growth in their views, but I would certainly say that forums are a relic that were awesome at the time. See, the internet, when it started off, we had message boards. See, message boards actually predate me, um, like not, not before I was alive, but before I really got into the internet. I was always on dial-up as a kid. We lived out in the country, so I never had good internet, so I couldn't really participate in all that stuff. But, um, and so message boards were the big thing, and those evolved into forums. And forums were great and terrible because you'd get both, like, 
the horrible system of organization that is a forum. Like, how do you find something on a forum? Have you done searches on forums? <laughs> it depends on, the, depends on the forum. <laughs> I have all the time. I do it all the time. But they're horrible. They it's, can be. There are yes. horrible searches. And most of them don't even get really into Google for some reason. I, some of the ones that I follow, I'm like, do they have like, it, they have their robots.txt file saying, please don't index me, Google? Because if I do a search on Google, I don't find anything. Um, and so, so I don't know if that's just their sites in particular. But uh, yeah, so there's the search functionality is horrible. So what do you do? You go on there and you ask a question. And then what sometimes happens when you ask a question? Oh, another person asking the same question that I've seen a hundred times, says somebody who's been on there for a long time. It's like, yeah, that's because a forum is not a repository of knowledge. The moment you post and then there's 10 more posts, yours gets buried and it dies. If it doesn't get views within the first page, then, well, you're not getting views and you're not getting replies. That's just the way forums work. Uh, so it's not a great repository of knowledge, even though people try to make it so. They sticky things and they and they have categories just for their guides. And they have the and I'm not speaking against any of the content in the forums because there is spectacularly great content in those forums. I'm talking about the method that they are organized. And I we had a forum on mini wargaming years ago, and I eventually closed it down just because it just wasn't worth. Um, the, the the time, the development time, because you always have to keep it up to date, otherwise it would always get hacked. And, you know, there's tons, There's all, you have to have a lot of people to be moderators, because there's always bots or, or people just being jerks. And you had to always you keep on top of that. And so I think that uh, what's replaced forums, or is replacing forums, like you have a few things, you have Reddit, for example, they even, I think they even call themselves the, the Internet's forum or something like that, right? Um, and Reddit, for some reason, it has the same problems as a forum that things can get buried, but it's for some, whatever reason is way better organized for Google. And so when you do Google searches, you so often find things on Reddit, which is great because it, so it's just in that way right there. Somehow it has an internal structure that Google just likes better and indexes better. And uh, so you so you have you have the findability of information, which is very, very important. So Reddit obviously has replaced a lot of that. And then you have all your other social medias as well. So some people, for example, go on forums to find gamers to play against, right? Well, you have Facebook groups for that. If you if you live in New York, there's probably, I'm 100% sure that there's a dozen New York gaming group Facebook, uh, Facebook groups, at least. Probably even specific to the game and probably even specific to the store that you frequent. And so you no longer need forums for that. Well, what about for tips and tricks and having a repository of articles there? Well, we have wikis, we've got Reddit, so that replaces that. So what about for getting the latest news and rumors? Well, companies are pretty good at posting those now, especially on social media, so you don't need it for that. So all of the things that forums were really great at have slowly been picked apart and put into other areas. And um, so, no, they won't die, but I, yeah, they are, they are going to lose their significance over the next decade for the same reason that e-zines and magazines. It's just the format is not the the easiest to use and easiest to find information in. Well, thank you uh, so much for spending all this time with me. We've, we've already spent way more than I thought we would, uh, but <laughs> I'm sure we both just like talking about wargaming. I, uh, so, oh yeah, you can get me talking forever. So, <laughs> uh, I want to get you out of here on a couple of selfish questions that are related to historical wargaming. You know, I sure. know that mini wargaming is is mostly Games Workshop, sci-fi, and fantasy. I've occasionally seen mentions of bold action. 
but our channel is is pretty much entirely dedicated to historical wargaming. And there is a common trend among, I think, all wargamers that as we get older, we often do find ourselves a little more interested in history and historical wargames. Most historical wargamers came from sci-fi and fantasy. Um, have you personally felt any pull as you get older? And we won't call out your age, but I can see a couple gray hairs coming out there. There's a few. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I have no hairs, so you know you you've got me beaten that regard. Uh, but have you felt the pull to trying any historical war games? Um, at the risk of ostracizing myself from your audience, I'm just going to say a flat no. <laughs> That's fair. That's totally fair. Not I don't I don't have anything against historical miniature war gaming. Um, just like I don't have anything against all the games I don't play in sci-fi and fantasy. Right? Like there's just certain things that pull me in. I. It's, it's, it's an interesting question to ask me specifically because I am not your typical war gamer. I'm somebody who does this for a living, right? And so my considerations of what I play has a lot to do with what my audience wants me to play. And whereas if I wasn't doing this as a business and I had time for miniature wargaming because I have, you know, four kids and lots of other responsibilities, then the question would actually come back, would I be playing the games that I play? And the answer is probably, yeah, but I'd definitely be playing a lot of other games too. Uh, because I would have the time to to do so. And so it's it's hard to ask me that question because of that. But I can still say with some honesty that historical has always been kind of something that I want to be interested in because I'm curious about it, but have never found myself pulled towards it. And it goes even as far as like not like fictitious historical. Like um, for example, Games Workshop years ago came out with a game Horus Heresy, which is just Warhammer 30k. It's, uh, you know, when the Emperor was still alive and doing all this stuff. And it's just 10,000 years in the past of Warhammer 40k. And I loved the game. The miniatures were cool. The game was cool. But I found myself after a little while getting bored of it because I'm like, the story's already been told. Like, the only way that I could... And this one it actually worked a little better because I could find my little piece of the galaxy where the story hasn't been told and tell my own stories. But in the end, I know what's going to happen. And even, like, Lord of the Rings, eventually I found myself enjoying it a little less because the game is designed around the named characters like you, your your generic captains and commanders and lieutenants aren't really any good uh, the ones that are good are aragorn and and gimli and legolas and gandalf and all these different ones but you know when you're playing a game and aragorn dies you're like huh <laughs> that, that that didn't really happen um, and so I find myself, even in, in fictitious kind of stuff, always wanting to delve outside of, you know, the established stuff and, and make my own little, um, my own little story, my own little universe. Uh, we play D&D &D weekly and I'll take existing modules and I'll change tons of stuff to make it fit into the world that I've created with my players. And so that's always been something that's been interesting to me. Uh, so per on a personal level, it's not yet interesting to me. I've done some research to try to figure out, because I don't know all the numbers, but I'm pretty sure, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, that the historical miniature wargaming market is smaller than the non-historical wargaming market. Would you agree Considerably. With that? Considerably smaller, and it's very hard to say how much smaller. It's hard to quantify that. Yeah. Uh, because we don't have great data, but it it's definitely a fraction of the size. Right. Well, you had said, I remember in the email that you sent me to ask for this interview, you had said, hey, I run Little uh, Little Wars TV, which is the biggest historical miniature wargaming YouTube channel. 
That's right. And, and then you put right. brackets. That's not saying much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you added a zero, if you added a zero to the end of our subscribers, we would be in the realm of a respectable fantasy sci-fi channel. Exactly. And so I was, I, I was curious. And so the thing I researched, I'm like, why is it that that's the case? And I, I don't think it's an accident. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's that historical miniature wargaming is not good because obviously you would disagree with that. That you have tons of fun playing it. And the people you play with also have tons of... I, I watched a few of your videos, too. And I'm like, they look like they're having a lot of fun. Um, it's funny, even in the videos you mentioned, well, that didn't happen. Right. <laughs> I, th right. I think I heard that more than one time. It's like, this yeah. one opened fire first, which uh, is not what happened at this battle. <laughs> but, you know, obviously you play it with alternate histories. You're like, what would happen if? Like that's, that's That must be how you have to play the historical stuff. Otherwise, you're just... You know, you're running a simulation rather than uh, a game. Um, but still, I, I was I, out of curiosity. I, I think the responsibility for that, because I, I think historical wargaming could be just as popular, but we have mass media to thank for that. Uh, and so what I just did really quickly was I looked up the top movies, the top grossing movies by decade. And I found a really interesting trend that is probably not going to be surprising, but it was nice to at least confirm it. So when you go back to the 1920s, you find in the top 10 several historical related things. Well, I don't know. I don't know the movies. I don't know if they're like true to history or not, but um, they definitely cover like Christian history or like Napoleon was one of them um, in, in the 1920s. And, and so we have all of that. And you don't find in the 1920s, I'm looking through it all, and the only vaguely sci-fi fantasy thing I see in there is Robin Hood. You go to the 30s, and all of a sudden you see, you still see that, you still see like a historical stuff, but now you're seeing Frankenstein, Wizard of Oz, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, King Kong. But you still find, as you go through the top 20, top 30, you still see lots of historical stuff, stuff that you could, in a very broad um, strokes, find there. We hit the, the 40s, and you still kind of get that same thing where you're still seeing historical. 50s, the same thing. You start to see a few others, like Peter Pan and Cinderella. Obviously, Disney was starting to, to get into the swing of things with their animated um, movies. But other than that, you do see things that are more like Christian history or, um, or historical-based things. Uh, the 60s, it's the same thing. But then we hit the 70s, and that's where it all changes. What are the top movies in the 70s? Yeah, you can probably think of one. Oh, boy. I'll say it, and you'll be like, oh, yeah, of course. Well, uh, Star Wars. Yeah. Number one, Star Wars. Sure. And guess what else is on that top list? Superman. Uh, oh, uh, okay. Close, right. encounters, now, close Encounters of the Third Kind. The Dawn of the Superhero movie, yes. The first Star Trek movie. Sure. Alien came out that year, or that decade. We still see some historical things in there, but then we hit the 80s. Number one, E.T. Number two and three, Star Wars. Number four, Batman. Number five, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Number six, Ghostbusters. Mm. Back to the Future, Indiana Jones, Indiana Jones. Um, and then the 90s, well, Star Wars Episode One, uh, Jurassic Park, Independence Day. Uh, we're, we're starting to hit that. And then, of course, we know what happened for the past 20 years. Marvel. Yeah, <laughs> Marvel Marvel's happened. taken over the top. And uh, like in the in the 2000s, we have Avatar and the Dark Knight. We have Pirates of the Caribbean. We have Spider-Man. We have Transformers. We have more Star Wars. We have Lord of the Rings. 
um, was in the 2000s. And that obviously had a huge impact on the fantasy genre. And the 2010s and the 2020s obviously are dominated by sci-fi and fantasy. And I think that's what it is, to be honest. Now, it's hard to know which comes first in that cycle. Are the movies doing well because people just like that better? Or is it one of those same problems that once a production company has a movie do well, what the heck do they do with it? They milk the heck out of it, right? They go, oh, Jurassic Park 1 did well? Well, let's make a million sequels. Star Wars 4, 5, and 6 did well? Well, let's write the prequels and the sequels and this and this and this and this and this. So instead of, you know, it's, it's so much easier to bank on an existing IP. Uh, at the moment they discovered comic book movies were good, well, they've got a infinite resource for that. They've, they've got thousands of superheroes and supervillains that they can draw on. They, we'll never see the end of superhero movies for at least the next few decades because they've got an endless amount. But even by now, they've already rebooted Spider-Man four times, Batman a couple times, Superman a few times. Like, they're not even trying with other ones. They're just like, Superman worked, let's do it again, but more gritty. Uh, Batman works, let's do it again, but grittier. It's like, right right now we're in the era of make it grittier, and I'm sure in 10 or 20 years they'll find another kind of spin, you know, make it all post-apocalyptic, Superman, but post-apocalyptic, Batman, but post-apocalyptic, I don't know, I can't predict the future. The, the, as soon as zombies took off, everybody's doing zombies. That, that's, like I said, we're both creative and horribly not creative, and so it's, that makes it really hard to know which came first the interest in fantasy and sci-fi or the mass media making us interested in sci-fi and fantasy? And I don't know if we could ever answer that question, to be honest, but we can definitely see a trend in what people are enjoying on TV and in movies. And that is definitely, definitely going to have a huge impact on what we enjoy in miniature wargaming. That's why I got into miniature wargaming. Lord of the Rings is because I love the movies and love the books before I love the movies. That got me into miniature wargaming like full tilt. Well, it's a great observation. I mean, and, and it's impossible to deny that the zeitgeist of the culture does help to dictate what people are interested in in playing, whether it's in a board game or a, a miniature game. So the the decline of the big budget war movie might have something to do with uh, less interest in history in general and in gaming history on the tabletop. Yeah, and maybe that's just a generational thing. Maybe that they were big budget because... Those people had lived through World War One and World War Two, right. or their parents had, and so it was fascinating to them because it was something that was visceral and real, and and that gives that because we want to watch things and participate in things that drive our emotions, and so what was more emotional than the survivors of World War Two at that time? Like holy cow! Like nothing for decades. I know there was other wars, but did anything really match? that level of emotion of the the turmoil that people felt like we're going through this pandemic right now and this like think about the level of turmoil that we feel through this um and this is this is probably nothing compared to living through a world war and so it makes sense that the further away we are from that the less interested we get in it and that it's uh, about something else so it's it does you have those shifts in culture that are going to be generational and the movies both ride those and accentuate those. So I think it's a double thing. I don't think it's a simple answer of which one caused the other. I think it's more like there's a wave and then the movie's like, hey, look at this wave and they go whoop and they take that wave up to the nth degree and they really play off of that because they want to make money, which is, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and so the things that are making less money, they get less attention. And, and that's just the way our economy decides things. <laughs> 
Well, I know you've already given away your best piece of business advice in this podcast, <laughs> but let me get you out of here with one final question. I'm going to ask you for a piece of advice. Okay. Be because you are clearly in that sci-fi fantasy space, the games workshop space, which is, as we said, much larger right now than the historical market. Do you have any advice for publishers, rule designers, people who are in the historical market? Is there anything that they could borrow from the playbook that you see in the sci-fi fantasy market, other than movies, because obviously we're not bankrolling a $200 million war movie today, uh, anything that they could do to help grow the audience for historical wargaming that has worked well in the market that you have seen? That, I think, is hard because of the nature of historical wargaming. Like, I think, in my opinion, one of the reasons sci-fi and fantasy is more popular is because you have more fantastic miniatures. And how do you make a, a person, like, you, you can't make them more fantastic, right? If you're doing historical. You need to be accurate. You need the tanks to look like the tanks. So you can't come out with a new design for the tanks, like Games Workshop does, right? It's like, now the Space Marines are bigger. And their guns are longer. And they got rid of the tracks and they're floating. And, you know, they can do that because it's science fiction and fantasy. But what are you going to do? Go back to World War II and remove the tracks and give them grav plates instead? And make look at these really cool looking tanks from World War II. Like the nature of the beast for historical uh, kind of prohibits that side of the hobby. And a lot of people are into it for that. Not everybody is a huge gamer. A lot of people are just collectors. And so I believe the only, the, the people who are, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but most likely the people who are really into historical wargaming are into the history that right. they are representing, which makes sense. I'm into sci-fi and fantasy because I'm into sci-fi and fantasy. I like playing these games because they, they have the tropes of the things that I enjoy. And so I can't imagine, because I, okay, here, what's your view on a game like Flames of War or Bolt Action? Do you find those to be good games, or do you find them to be more like oversimplifications that kind of pander to uh, a beginner wargamer? Are, prefer... are you trying to get me in trouble, Matthew? <laughs> are you are, are you trying to put me in a hard spot right here? Because it sounds like you're wading into some dangerous territory in my neck of the hobby. Okay, see, that's I don't even know that. I, I, I get the impression that there's going to be purists, and this is not a bad word, it's a purist is a person who's like, if you're going to play this, you better paint it right and you better represent it right. And so you need rules that'll do that. And those rules are kind of, and they need to be probably a little more complex. Whereas I, I, I remember like people, I remember hearing comments and they, this is not represent the market, like for Flames of War. I know people on my end who love Flames of War, but they found that certain historical war gamers were like, ah, it just seems to be like an oversimplification just to pander to people who like sci-fi and fantasy. And you don't have to answer whether that's true or not. It's definitely but... true, and I don't mind answering because okay. I'm already, I've been outed. I'm already on the record as a historical purist. So right. I lean, and most of the guys in our club uh, would tell you that Flames of War and Bold Action are great games, but they really don't have anything to do with World War II. Right, and, and, that's, and that's fine for the game, but not fine for the market necessarily. Correct, and but so... those are two different markets, which might be your point. We've got a market of people who want to have a great game that might be loosely based and set in World War II with a little window dressing. And then you have a market of people like myself who are just genuinely very interested in World War II. And I want my game to reflect what feels like World War II. 
So there's one piece of advice I can give that I can say for sure. And that is you need to, in order to get more people into any hobby, you need to show people how fun that hobby is. And uh, for whatever reason of why it's fun, like uh, if you're making videos and you guys, it, I, it looks like when you guys are making videos, you're having fun. So that's great. We actually are having fun, believe it or not. That's that's real. We're not but even faking it, it. I know, but it comes through. And not every person who makes battle reports comes through as having fun at the moment. Some of them come through. They, they may they may be very well spoken. Uh, they may have nice looking miniatures and terrain, but they don't always have that jovial attitude as they're doing it. They're not being salty or negative. It's more just kind of like a, you know, mm. a, a deadpan kind of thing, which which is not going to be super inviting. It's not like look at how much fun they're having. Like there needs to be laughing and yelling and shouting and. And so I see those when I when I watch those I I can say that just by watching your videos there's definitely more interest in my mind than there was before. Is there enough for me to get started? Well, I don't think I have time to. But the, my point is the best thing that these companies can do is to use media, whether written, video, live, podcast, it doesn't matter, to portray just how much fun people have in these hobbies. And to focus on that. Don't focus. I, I don't think you have a huge. I, I'm doubting there's a big competitive side to historical miniature wargaming. No, not at all. I that wouldn't make sense, right? It's like, like I'm sure people want to win the game they're playing. Like, but I, I mean, like you don't have a huge focus on. Here's the best way to build your German army from World War II. You know, spam this one particular tank, even though that's not what they did back then. And you know, bring nothing but this type of infantry, even though that's not what they did back then. Because this is the best in the rules, and you'll win more games. Like I don't. Well, that think is I... that is, by the way, what happens in Flames of War and Bold Action, which is why some of us, you know, may not look as kindly on those rule sets because they can be tournament driven, and I think they're trying to capture part of the market that you see in sci-fi and fantasy. There is a huge tournament crowd in your part of the hobby, and some of these companies that are in the historical side are thinking, hmm, how do we get some of those players? I wouldn't try because I think it's a fallacy even to say that there's as much of a competitive and tournament side in the sci-fi and fantasy as you think. Uh, it's been my experience having served our videos to literally millions of war gamers that the majority of them are not competitive tournament goers. That the majority of them are super casual and just want to have a lot of fun and aren't necessarily looking to build the perfect lists and to beat the crap out of their opponents. Um, and not that there's anything wrong with that. Sometimes we try that in our own games. We're like, you know, build the best thing you can do. I'll build the best thing I can do, and we'll see who wins. And that can be fun, too. But I think in our market, that's a fallacy that there's actually a good portion are competitive. When you go to organized events, you're going to see more of them there because that's where they'll go. But uh, what I've experienced from our viewers is that the large majority of them are casual. And, and that's what you want. That's what you want to draw on. And uh, we've gotten over the 14 years, I would say our, we, we've gotten thousands, if not tens of thousands of people say to us, I got back into the hobby because of you guys, because of how much fun you guys were having in your videos. And I think that's the key thing. Those companies, they need to make good rules. They need to make good miniatures. They need to make good rule books. I think they know how to do all those things already. And, and or at least they know where to find that information. And they, that, that's been honed, right? What they need to do now is use the internet to show everybody how fun the hobby is. And historical miniature wargaming, I know, is fun. 
just because I'm not interested in history doesn't mean I don't recognize that it's fun. There's lots of things I see other people do that I'm like, oh, they, they, I can see that they are having a lot of fun. That must be fun. Just not something I'm interested in. I'm not going to be one of those people who's like, oh, I don't like it, so it must be garbage. Because <laughs> people like that exist, of course. So, yeah, show people how much fun it is. And that's what you're doing already. So you're a good example of what those companies should be doing. There's only so much that you can do as a channel. There's only so much I can do as a channel. Uh, like Games Workshop, for the longest time, kind of shunned the Internet. And now look at them. Now look at just all the stuff they're posting. They've got live streams all over the place. They post videos on YouTube. They post articles like crazy. And they're doing great because of it. There's definitely been an upward trend in their numbers ever since they've really pushed that. And yes, maybe they in this latest edition, they're focusing a little too heavily on the tournament side of things. But they're still showing, when you read their articles and watch their videos, you see just they're talking about how much fun everything is. And that's what we need to portray. Because in the end, isn't that what we want in a hobby? So yeah, show how great the hobby is in every medium possible. Video, article, live, podcast. That's what these companies should be doing. That's They should actually take a significant portion of the marketing budget that they have, and they should put it into that if they're not already. They should hire good personalities who are good on camera. They should hire good writers who have write great articles and, and then just showcase the, the coolest parts of their hobby. It's a great piece of advice to get us out of here on, and uh, you guys have certainly done that on your channel on Mini Wargaming. Uh, even though you're in a different space of the hobby than our channel, a lot of our guys still love playing, sneaking in the occasional Games Workshop game when the cameras aren't rolling. Uh, <laughs> when nobody's looking. Exactly. Yeah, we'll do, we'll do a fantasy game nobody's looking. I just want to shoot a missile launcher across the table and blow up the tank, all right? You know, you, you guys are definitely having a lot of fun with it, and we're huge fans of what you've done with your channel. It's, it's extremely impressive, uh, and I hope that you guys can all emerge uh, from this COVID business stronger and healthier, and that the events business is, is a new, exciting direction for you. Yeah, me too. Thank you very much for having me on this interview. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Matthew. Tell, uh, tell Dave and the rest of the team we said hi, and uh, hopefully we'll have a chance to talk again sometime. Sounds great. That was awesome, man. Thank you. I had no idea we were going to go this long. We're at an hour and 20 minutes here. That's crazy. It wouldn't have. I, I actually had a really bad night last night, so I called in sick today because I was supposed to go film. So I was supposed to film right after this, so it would have been more restricted because I'm at home and it's like, whatever. You got me talking about the, th the things I like to talk about the most, which is business stuff. So I can go on forever about that kind of stuff. One more huge thank you to Matthew from Mini Wargaming. He was so gracious with his time, and he came into this well-prepared, like a true veteran interviewee. I had a blast chatting with him. It's just fun to be able to pick the brain of somebody that you admire, who's built a business in what I would consider a difficult market. Hell, he and Dave basically created the market as far as Wargaming YouTube videos go. If you'd like to check out their channel, just Google Mini Wargaming, all one word, and they'll pop up right away. They're on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, they have a podcast, and they have a great website, www.miniwargaming.com. Even if you're a historical wargamer like myself, it's fun to see what those guys are working on and the passion and joy that they put into the hobby.